Well, there's little dispute that slavery was one of the darkest moments in the history of our country. Uh, In fact, our great president, Abraham Lincoln, who I might add I share a birthday with. That's not what makes him great. I just wanted to make sure you understand when my birthday is in case you forget it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the Civil War was undoubtedly, in my mind, one of the brightest moments in our country. If slavery was a dark moment, that was certainly a bright moment. Imagine you were one of those people, though, who had been enslaved your entire life. That's all that you'd you'd ever known. And then on January 1st, 1863, came the proclamation from President Lincoln that you were now free. That you were no longer somebody's possession. You were no longer enslaved, but you were free. Now, we know from history, and it's pretty obvious, that slave masters hated it, and their desire was to keep those who had been enslaved right where they were. They wanted to keep them uninformed. They wanted to keep them ignorant about their new freedom. Go uh, further with me to about 80 years or so later. Imagine you're one of the Jews who'd been sent to a concentration camp in Eastern Europe. And you were labeled by those who were in authority as an undesirable. And then one day toward the end of World War II in about 1945, some of them as early as the end of 1944, soldiers enter the concentration camp that you're in that you believed that you would be in for the rest of your life, that that is where your life would indeed end. And they announce that you are free. Picture that moment. Can there be any greater three words in the English language than those three? You are free. Undoubtedly, there were plantation owners in the 1800s and there were captors in those prison camps in Europe who did not want to acknowledge that freedom and they did everything possible to keep people enslaved. I got to thinking this week that it is just like that today in a spiritual sense. There are those who would have us believe that we are not free in Christ, but we are still under the obligation to obtain our justification or at the very least our eternal security or God's favor by observing a list of rules. And if you've been with us any length of time over the last several weeks or months here at Northwest, you've heard us emphatically preach out of the book of Galatians the theme of the book, which is that we are free. And as John said it earlier, I, I know it's a, it's a Sunday morning and it's early and you probably stayed up a little too late last night watching that Hallmark movie or something else. All right, next time DVR it, watch it on Sunday afternoon. But to be told that you are free, especially those of us, all of us who are enslaved by sin, those are indeed incredible words. Eugene Peterson has a word for us about the mentality of those that would try to keep us under bondage or enslaved to sins. He wrote this, There are people who do not want us to be free. They don't want us to be free before God, accepted just as we are by his grace. They don't want us to be free to express our faith originally and creatively in the world. They want to control us. They want to use us for their own purposes. They themselves refuse to live arduously and openly in faith, but they huddle together with a few others and try to get a sense of approval in insisting that we all look alike, talk alike, and act alike, thus validating one another's worth. And at first sight, the gospel seems to remove all motivation for us living a holy life. 
It goes something like this. Well, hey, if I'm saved by grace through faith, and it's not about what I do or what I don't do, then I think I will eat, drink, and be merry because at some point I got my ticket punched, I got a couple of whizzy buttons on my shirt, and I'm going to go to heaven anyway. In fact, the Judaizers in Paul's day said that the doctrine of grace was dangerous. They said it replaces law with license. They said something like this, what if we do away with our rules and we abandon our high standards? What will happen then? The communities of faith will fall apart. And that attitude might be why over the centuries churches have felt the need to tone down the radical claims of the gospel and to trade gospel freedom for a message which encourages people not to simply live any way that they want for fear that they might. And so the next passage here in Galatians chapter 5 is critical in helping us understand that freedom that the gospel brings is freedom from fear and from condemnation and it leads us to and indeed a hope for our future. And we live for God rather than to simply live a life that's lived to simply pleasure and please ourselves. And so if you've been with us over the last several weeks, over the last few months, you know that Paul has been, uh, for the last two chapters, we have consistently preached gospel, gospel, gospel. We're justified by faith through grace, through grace by faith. It's, it's that alone. It's Jesus plus nothing else. And now Paul's going to turn from his argument to why that's true to application, from the doctrinal to the practical. If you've got a pen and a piece of paper, I want you to write these things down. This might be important for you to understand as we go now through chapter 5 and chapter 6 in the next couple of weeks. It's easy to see the sequence of thought in these closing chapters. Number one would be Galatians 5, 1 to 2. We're going to talk out of here this morning. I've been set free by Christ. I'm no longer under bondage to the law. Number two, but I need something or someone to control my life from within. That someone is who? That's the Holy Spirit, right? We're not equipped to be able to live the life that God wants us to live on our own through our flesh. We need the Holy Spirit. That's Galatians 5, 13 to the end of the chapter. That's where next week we'll talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Number three, through the Spirit's love, I have a desire to live for others, not for myself. Think about what a different world this would be if all of us lived with that mentality. And then number four, this life of liberty is so wonderful that I want to live it to the glory of God, for he is the one that makes it possible. We'll see that, uh, Galatians 6, 11 through the end of the chapter. Now, contrast that with the experience of the person who chooses to live under the law or under the disciplines or the teachings of some religious leader. It would go like this. If I obey these rules, I'll become a more spiritual person. I'm a great admirer of this religious leader or of these teaching, and so I will submit myself to the system. Number two, I believe I have enough strength to obey and improve myself. I do what I'm told, and I measure up to the standards that are set for me. Number three, stage three is I'm making progress. I don't do some of the things I used to do. Other people compliment me on my obedience and my discipline. I can see that I'm better than others in my fellowship. How wonderful to be so spiritual. And then lastly, if only others were like me. God is certainly fortunate that I am his. You say, well, we would, we would never have this attitude, right? Right? You ever looked in the mirror and thought, hey, I'm going to church today, and boy, is it good for God that I'm on his team. I think some of us have. 
I have one desire, and that is to share with others so they can be as I am. Our group is growing, and we have a fine reputation. Too bad other groups are not as spiritual as we are. That, my friends, is the pattern of legalism. That's what happens when we buy into anything else other than Jesus and Jesus alone. And no matter how you look at it, legalism is an insidious, dangerous enemy. When you abandon grace for law, you always lose. And so in this first section, Paul explains what the believer loses when he turns from God's grace to man-made rules and regulations. And that's where we find ourselves today in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. If you've got your Bible open there, let's, uh, let's dive right in there. Paul writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. By the way, this refers, if you were to look back at the original Greek language, this refers to a single past act that is now completed. We don't believe in progressive justification, right? We believe in progressive sanctification. That means that I am going to continually, as I walk through my Christian life, be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. When I am justified... When my sin debt has been marked paid in full, that doesn't happen over a period of time as I do a bunch of things and perform in a certain way. Paul is referring to a single past act that's now completed, so we can't lose our salvation, but we can lose our freedom from enslavement to fear. Christ has freed us, in other words, so we're to live as we're free. Now, I want to just say this at the outset, and I feel like I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit, but it's kind of important as we dive into this next section to make sure we understand where we've been. One Bible teacher said it this way, and and I loved the way that he put this. What the Bible teaches is antithetical to what we perceive as how the world works. We believe that we're free people born in a free democracy who are free to do or become whatever it is that we desire. As Americans, that's certainly true of us, right? We go around the country and some of you travel for work and you go into places where the people aren't as free as we are. But as Americans, we believe we are free. We can do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it as long as we don't break laws that affect other people. The Bible, in fact, spiritually tells us the complete opposite. It says, in fact, that we are born enslaved to sin and death and that we are literally in slavery to two things. And many of us don't like to admit that. We don't like to admit that we're enslaved, but we know it's true. Because many of us have tried to be perfect in thought, word, and deed, and we find it completely impossible. And that's really where the old adage comes that no one is perfect. And that's true. No one is perfect because we're slaves to sin. We're chained to it. That's what the Apostle Paul, by the way, I believe is at least in some cases referring to in Romans chapter 7 when he says, why is it that the things that I want to do I find myself not doing and the things that I know I shouldn't do I find myself doing? Well, because we're born enslaved to sin. And while at salvation those chains are broken and we're no longer enslaved to it, we still live next to it. We're imprisoned to it. And what sets us free from those chains, what breaks those chains, is when we, become, when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so our whole social structure is trying to figure out how do we deal with sin. We have lots of ways, by the way, in which we do that in our country, don't we? We have laws. That's how we deal with sin. We have attorneys who help defend us when we break those laws. We have courts who are there to right wrongs. We have a punishment for certain crimes. All of this is to deal with sin, which is our great enemy. 
And here's the truth. This Bible teacher goes on to say, no matter how much money we spend, no matter how many programs we develop, unless God transforms the human heart, we are still in slavery to our sin. In addition, we are enslaved to our death. Some of us don't like to talk about that. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to talk about uh, the moment in which we will cease to exist bodily on this planet. And so we do what? We, we wear our seatbelts in our car and we do all of these things that are, that are cautious. We eat vitamins. Why? We, we just do it, right? I say to my wife, sometimes she's taking a vitamin, I say, what's that for? She said, well, it's supposed to do this. And I'm going, I don't know. How do you know that? Well, somebody told me that, that that's what would happen. We jog. Why? That's a good question, isn't it? Right? Why do we do these things? Why do we, why do we beat it? Because, because at the end of the day, we believe we'll live just a little bit longer. But at the, in the end, even though we don't want to admit it, we don't want to talk about it, we are enslaved to our death. And we're going to die. I don't care how much you jog. I don't care how many vitamins you take. I don't care if you don't eat at the donut truck in a couple of weeks, all right? You're going to die. And so what Jesus has done, here's the great news of the gospel. God takes note of our condition, and he sends Jesus to come to this earth to live as a man, to suffer, to bleed, and to die, and then ultimately to be resurrected. And he does this. He takes on human flesh. He lives without sin, and he dies for us. And as a result of that, when we place our trust in his death on the cross as the payment for the penalty of our sin, we are liberated. We're free. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're not, we're not bound any longer to it. Death doesn't matter. Because in the best case scenario, if I live to be 115 down here, it's just a grain of sand on a beach down in Florida, one of billions and billions and billions of grains of sand. That's all my life represents. Because I live for eternity. And so Christ liberates us. We're free. We've been redeemed and we don't have to die. Physically we may die, but we live forever with Jesus in heaven. That's awesome. That's great. That's freedom. Paul goes on to say, verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who, are, who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, I know some of you are sitting there, especially you guys, and you're going, all right, all the circumcision talk. I thought, oh, we got that over with in, the, in Galatians chapter 1, all right? And I, and I know that some of you are going, I didn't come to church this morning to talk about circumcision. I get all that, but hey, we got to deal with the text, right? That's what we got to do. We've seen in our study of Galatians that the Judaizers taught that unless you were circumcised and you kept the law, that you couldn't be saved. In fact, if you turn back in your Bible there to Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Right? There's these Gentiles that are, that are coming to faith and trusting in that, in that Jew named, named Jesus, and they're going, well, that's not enough. 
we've got this custom, we've got this under the law, and here's what's supposed to happen, and so you're going to have to be circumcised. Now, I don't really get this whole thing, right? I mean, I I got paper on my walls that says I'm supposed to understand all of this stuff and supposed to understand how all of it fits. I oftentimes look back into this culture and go, how would you know whether or not somebody was or wasn't, all right? It gets very complicated for me, all right? I don't, I don't totally get it. I don't totally understand it. I don't, and I haven't, I haven't read anybody who's given me a really good explanation, quite frankly. But here's what Paul is saying. Look, I really don't care if you're circumcised or not. If that's what you want to do, do it. But if you're doing it thinking that it's part of justification or makes you more pleasing to God, then you are totally wrong. Imagine what those who had already done it because they bought into the lies of the Judaizers thought as they're hearing Paul say this. Can't you see them standing next to each other? These guys going, I thought you said that that was important. And there the guy goes, well, that's what he said. I mean, that guy that came into town and I thought, you know, I'm just trying to make sure that we, get, we had it all figured out and we were doing it the right way. And they're going, so you mean I went through that for nothing? All right, all speculation on my part, but I'm just imagining that some of those conversations must have taken place. But Paul repeats himself from chapter 1 by reminding them that you cannot add to Jesus without subtracting Jesus. He's either everything or he's nothing. It's either all about Jesus or it's not about Jesus at all. Legalism is simply this. Legalism is treating something that might be good as if it were essential. It's easy for us to look at the issue of circumcision as it is for a lot of us who are just going like this, you know, especially you ladies, you don't care about it, you know, it's just going right over your head. And even for us guys, we go, that's not a big deal, you know. I, it's easy for us to think that's something that we would never rely on for our salvation. It's easy, right? Not so fast. In our culture, we have a habit of doing the same thing. Not about circumcision. We have a habit of doing the same thing and we place an overemphasis on other things that at the end of the day don't really matter. Think about it, those of you that have known Jesus for any length of time, think about it if if you don't have a habit of doing that, that you place an overemphasis on something that at the end of the day doesn't really matter. Many of us have seen and maybe participated in disagreements in the church over styles of music over preferences of Bible translations, differences in entertainment choices. Uh, I, I was r- reminded, you know, singing this song this morning, I'm free, and you know that line, I'm free to dance. I remember growing up where, t- trust me, I was not free to dance, all right? I was free to wear my hair above my ears and look like a clown, but I was not free to dance. Some of you have been there, you've participated in these things. Maybe right now, you're still doing the same thing. You look at the circumcision argument and you go, well, that's stupid. But you still have your list of things that you think matter, that you think count. And I'm here to tell you that at the end of the day, when we place an overemphasis on things that might be good but are not essential and don't count, we are indeed legalist. We judge ourselves, we judge others on the food they eat or don't eat, on the beverages they consume or don't consume. Paul said it this way, My paraphrase. I don't care if you're baptized or not baptized. I don't care if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. I don't care if you're Arminian or if you're Calvinistic. I don't care if you're charismatic or non-charismatic. I don't care if you're pre-trib or post-trib. I don't care if you like traditional music or contemporary music. I don't really care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care if you even know what I'm talking about. He would say it this way. Do you love Jesus? 
Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you trusting in him alone as your Savior, as the payment for the penalty of your sin? I found this interesting reading uh, this week that uh, George Whitfield admitted how he had gotten off track by losing sight of what ultimately counts. He wrote this, fascinating. He said, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, he may say his prayers, receive the sacraments, and yet not be a Christian. (laughs) There's some of you in the room today, and that's your testimony. That one day, the Spirit of God spoke to your heart, and you began to understand that it wasn't about all these things that you do or that you don't do, but it was simply having a relationship with the one who loved you enough that he suffered, bled, and died on a cross, and three days later rose from the grave. See, here's what legalists do. Legalists lose sight of what ultimately counts, and they start thinking that non-essentials are essential. We know we have a problem with this, by the way, and some of you really, you know, as Matt said last week, really, you should stand up and go, hey, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a legalist. Here's how you know you're a legalist. You have a problem with legalism. That's when you get to the point where you lose your joy of living the Christian life. Because Jesus said, I've come, John 10, 10, that you might have life, and what kind of life? Depending on what translation you're reading, life to the full, life to the max, abundant life. Jesus didn't come so that you would go through life going, hmm, I have different octaves. And people are looking at you going, man, you're so strange. What is it with you? Well, you know, Jesus doesn't want us to be happy. He doesn't want to. You know you're a legalist when you start living that way. I want to see somebody who really understands freedom in Christ. Their life will always be marked by joy because they are free. Be a great place for an amen. If you were just looking for a place where you go, hey, I want to say amen today. I'm just waiting for the right moment. That would have been a good place right there. There we go. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Even though I had to coax it out of you. It's a tough crowd this morning. Verse 7. We got to hurry. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul likes using analogies that relate to athletics, and often he writes in that way. And he's, he's basically saying, hey, picture a race, and this runner's running. I forget what Olympics it was, but I remember one Olympics I was watching as a kid, and this lady was running. She was supposed to win this race. I don't even remember her name, but because she didn't win the race, probably. Somebody, and somebody cut in on her, and when they played the tape back, literally, she had just been taken out. Okay? It doesn't happen in the guy races, but these women can be really fierce, right? Just took her totally out. And I remember when I saw that, I, I think of this passage, and Paul says this a lot, lot. You were running so well. Who cut in on you and kind of pushed you off of the track and kept you from obeying the truth? Verse 8, this persuasion is not from the one who calls you. In other words, this didn't come from God. This didn't come from me who's representing God. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, those of you who bake, you understand the statement, right? I don't bake much, but I eat a lot of what's baked. It only takes a little yeast to make a big pile of dough rise. It's really an amazing thing, right? I mean, you put a little bit of yeast there and you go, wow, that's pretty awesome. Just a little bit is all it takes. And so it is with legalism and wrong teaching. And that's why we do everything that we can to guard our doctrine closely. That's why scripture makes it very clear that that's part of the role of our elders to watch over our doctrine. Because it only takes just a little bit to get us to go down a road that has disastrous consequences. And that's why we got to get this stuff right. Verse 10, 
I have confidence in the Lord that you'll take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever it is. Paul obviously believes that they are genuine followers of Jesus. They've just kind of begun to toy a little bit with some false teaching that they're hearing, and he's confident that they're going to heed his warning. And he makes it very clear that whoever these people are, and it would seem in the text that he's not even sure who they are, but whoever they are, that they're going to give an account, that there's going to be a price to be paid for the false doctrine that they're teaching. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul was simply declaring the Judaizers to be inconsistent because if he preached circumcision, then they should have enthusiastically accepted him, and instead of enthusiastically accepting him, they were persecuting him. And that's good evidence that he wasn't buying into the same teaching to circumcision for Gentiles. Now, this next verse, and I'm glad I'm running out of time because that'll mean that I can go very quickly in this section. This next verse is undoubtedly one of, and Bible scholars agree with this, almost every commentary I've read on the book of James would say this, it is undoubtedly one of the angriest, seemingly most vindictive, even sarcastic verses in the New Testament. In fact, some theologians, I use that term loosely, when writing on Galatians chapter 5 in their commentaries, of which they are very verbose on other verses, get to verse 12 and say very little. I, however, even though I'm short on time, I will make comments. I'm going to say something because I think something needs to be said. I think we need to understand why Paul said this and why, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, it was allowed to be put in Scripture. Look at verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, here's what's interesting. Paul, from this point forward now, he is going to transition. It's almost as if when he says this, he goes, and this is, again, my opinion, but the theologians aren't really sure about a lot of this, so I feel like I can take a little bit of liberty here, all right, because I'm free, right? I think Paul says this, and he goes, okay, I know I'm righteously angry, but maybe I shouldn't have said that. And so he kind of turns real quickly then and starts getting into the application. It's almost as if he's saying, okay, I think I've said enough. I think they get my point. Martin Luther had a field day with this passage. He translated it in these words. Tell those who are disturbing you, I'd like to see the knife slip. That's what he said. Martin Luther, the great reformer, the one whose books we have on our shelves and we revere on Reformation Sunday. That's what he said. Tell those who are disturbing you, I'd like to actually just see the knife slip. Now, if you've studied the life and ministry of Martin Luther, you appreciate and understand his indelicate translation of this particular text, right? He had a habit of doing that. He was uh, uh, pretty bold and pretty brash. The New English Bible translates it this way. As for these agitators, they had better go the whole way and make eunuchs of themselves. Paul's saying, in fact, that if they want to cut just a little bit of skin, why don't they just go ahead and mutilate themselves? That's a hard statement and one that you can't take any other way except to understand that Paul had great passion when he wrote these words. Here's what's really sad, and here's why I want to take just a moment on this verse, and that is most of us today don't think that phony Christianity is actually that serious. It amazes me how many people there are who are seemingly evangelical. That means they, they believe that we are saved by faith through Jesus Christ alone, that that is the only way to Jesus 
It's amazing to me how many of those people will sit in so-called evangelical churches and listen to a false gospel that is propagated each and every week. And we take it as really not that serious. After all, I went to their worship time, and they sing songs just like we sing. They call their pastor, Pastor. I actually saw him open up a Bible. And so we just assume that everything's okay. And we wouldn't say anything like this, especially in public. But it ought to challenge us to see how genuinely, righteously angry Paul is about those who would sell phony Christianity to other people. And i got to tell you, I am there myself. I've been there just this week with just finding out some things that are happening even in our triangle area of some churches that, that, that proclaim to be followers of Jesus and teachers of the inerrant Scripture that are teaching a gospel that is very different from what we find in God's Word. That ought to make us angry. Throughout these verses, you cannot miss the, in, the insistence that there is an all-or-nothing proposition about faith. We can't mix together legalism and works with the gospel. And so Paul, after making this statement, he changes directions. And in the first 12 verses, he implores them not to lose their gospel freedom. And now in these next two verses, he reminds us that our freedom in Jesus is not to be abused. Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Pretty hard transition after verse 12, right? (laughs) I mean, he makes a pretty brash, pretty bold statement, and then he says, for you were called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. John Stott did a good job of explaining what freedom is all about. He said, it's not the freedom to do whatever we want. He said, it's freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God and others. It's a really great definition, by the way. To fall back into keeping a list of rules means we lose our freedom. But to simply do as the flesh desires with no regard for right and wrong and for the holiness of God is to fall into permissiveness and to abuse our freedom. Tim Keller said it this way, The gospel, therefore, neither leads us to live a guilty life, since God has lovingly accepted us, nor an unholy life, since the God who accepted us is perfectly holy. To forget the first is to fall into the mistake Paul deals with in verse 1 and lose our freedom. To forget the second is to make the verse 13 error and abuse our freedom. Both mean we lose our grasp of the gospel. And so now what he's going to do from this point all the way to the end of chapter 6 is he's going to tell us what the gospel actually looks like. Look at the end of verse 13. But through love we're to serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled or summarized in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul previously asserted that we should not be slaves to legalism, but now he balances that command that they ought to be slaves to one another in love. Now think about this for a moment. There is no one who is more free than Jesus, right? And interestingly enough, though, there's no one who is a greater servant of mankind than God, right? We read in Philippians chapter 2, verses that are familiar to many of you, verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the very Son of God who humbles himself in that way, being the ultimate servant. Here's a reality check. Let me ask you as we close. 
How do you think uh, you're doing in that area? Serving other people, of loving other people by serving others. Think about it not just individually, but think of us collectively. How do you think we as a church, if you, if you say Northwest Community Church is a place where you worship, you're part of this community of faith, how do you think that we're doing with regards to that? That we are living out our love for Jesus by serving one another. We live in a world, don't we, where we're encouraged that first and foremost, I should look out for me and for mine. But Jesus came and he taught a radically new way of thinking. In fact, John 13 records, he said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also ought to love one another. And by this, when we do that, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have that kind of love for one another. How do we do that? Well, we, we pray for one another, right? We do that pretty regularly here at Northwest, but, but we pray for one another. We lift each other up. We're patient with one another. You ever find yourself becoming impatient with anybody that's in this body of believers right here? I'm convicted about that because I have found myself, even in recent days, incredibly impatient with sinners who are just like me. But when we love to the point of serving one another, we're patient with one another. We encourage one another. Sometimes we even challenge one another. But at the end of the day, we see others as more important than we are. Let me ask you, how do you think you're doing in that area? Or do you look out for you and for yours, first of all? And then if I have some time left over, if I have some money left over, if I have some energy left over, then I'll look out for you. Paul's saying, through love, serve one another. Because at the end of the day, this can all be summarized by loving our neighbor as ourself. He said in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. If we don't love one another, but if we're selfish and we make our happiness and our comfort and our preferences the goal, then literally we kill each other like cannibals. We feast on our brothers and sisters in Christ, and eventually the church dies. We destroy our community of faith and our influence for the gospel in this community and around the globe. So how are we doing? How are you doing? Do you love, love, love one another? I'm really convicted about that. I have been really convicted about that just this week as, I have, as I've studied over this text. And, I, and in the first part, I'm going, I'm cool with all that. I get all that. And then you get to verse 13 and you go, basically at the end of the day, what Paul said to the Corinthians is true. That if you do all of these things, but you don't love, you're what? You're a clanging gong. Right? You ever watch the gong show? Some of you old enough to remember that, you know? People come and go, bong! That meant we're, you know, you're that worthless. You say, but I know my doctrine. I mean, what you've been preaching, even though I haven't said it outwardly, I am amening everything that you say. You know the, your doctrine. You read your Bible every day. You pray. You don't drink. You don't dance. You don't hang out with people that do. You do all of this stuff, but you don't love. Paul said it to the Corinthians. If we do all of that and we don't love people. We don't serve one another. We're nothing. We're a clanging symbol. Useless white noise in the background. As we go through the rest of the book, through the end of the letter, it isn't going to get much better than this now, right? 
For those of you that have been going, oh, I love grace. It's really awesome that I'm not saved by doing a bunch of things. And I'm free. I'm free to dance. I'm free to, okay. All of a sudden we're going to go, yeah, you're free. You're free to live for Jesus. You're free to love people as he loved people. You're free to get and understand why he left us on this planet after we were justified and came into a relationship with him because we are here to influence people with the life-changing message of the gospel. And now for the end of chapter 5 and all into chapter 6, he's gonna, you're going to say, hey, how do you do that? Glad you asked because we're going to tell you in the next several weeks. It's going to be very convicting for those that teach and for those that listen. But if we're committed to doing and not just being hearers, but doing, living this way causes us to have an irresistible influence for the cause of Christ in this community. And I pray we'll be that kind of people individually. I pray we'll be that kind of community of faith. And we will have great influence because we serve one another by loving one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text would have loved to have preached three or four hours on this text. It's so rich and so good, and especially even here as we get to the end. But, Father, I just pray that your word, I know you say it won't return void, and so I pray that uh, somehow, some way, that you'll make sense of what I said and it will find lodging in hearts. And, God, for the recovering legalists that are amongst us this morning, which is many of us, God, reinforce on our hearts that we are free. We're no longer enslaved or chained to sin. Death really doesn't matter because we know where we're going and we know whose we are. And God, I pray that we would live as if we are free, free to love, free to love other people that you love so much that you were willing to suffer and bleed and die on a cross for the sins of mankind. May we love people like that. And by doing so, may everybody know the difference, the change, the radical transformation that's been made in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.